0: Now, Keith is a veteran law enforcement officer and the author of the book, From Sorrow to Amazing Grace. And what really struck me about Keith's story is that he didn't write about the highs of his career, but quite the opposite. He was very, very courageous and transparent of the highs and the lows, including an excessive force charge, being arrested for a DUI. But as you start listening to the story from the beginning, you hear about the impacts from the job, the impact from early life, losing a partner on a scene that is murdered right in front of him. And these are the backstories that we need to hear. These are the human stories that all compound to come together to some of our unravelings, whether it's through alcohol, drugs, violence, whatever it is. So I urge you to listen to this. This is such a powerful story. Before we get to this interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 500 episodes now, so all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Keith Notek. Enjoy. Well, Keith, I want to start by saying thank you so much for not only reaching out and sending me a copy of your book, but also taking the time to come on today and speak to this audience on the Behind the Shield podcast.
1: Oh, thank you, James. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being uh, here with you today.
0: So where on planet Earth are we finding you?
1: I am in uh, Prescott Valley. It's Prescott Valley, Arizona, but um, shortly after we moved here, we we realized that the locals call it press kit, P-R-E-S-K-I-T, and that's how the locals pronounce it. If you call it Prescott, uh, people will know you're not from around here.
0: Okay, yeah. Well, obviously, that town <laughs> you know resonates deeply with the fire service because of the Prescott 19. So, I've Absolutely. had uh, several people from that area on the show already regarding not even specifically that, but but you know that's a that's definitely something that left a big mark on that community. Definitely, definitely. So starting with your own journey at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: Sure. Uh, I was born in uh, the mid 60s in San Bernardino, California. And um, my father was a Lutheran pastor uh, back when he was alive. And my mom was a stay at home mom, a homemaker. Um, I had one sibling, a sister, uh, she's eight years older than me. And, uh, we grew up all over Southern California. Uh, my dad would get, um, transfers to different churches. So we lived in a little town in the middle of nowhere. Um, I think for about three years, uh, called North Edwards and it's North of Edwards Air Force base in Kern County. And then we ended up uh, in Capistrano Beach for three years, um, which is right next to Dana Point in Orange County. And then uh, I believe I was eight years old when my dad got a transfer to a church in Huntington Beach, California. Um, also in orange county so i predominantly grew up in orange uh well in orange county but specifically huntington beach which was a a great community to grow up in in the the late 70s and the early 80s um you know huntington beach has a a nickname they call it surf city usa surfing is huge uh in huntington beach and um you know it's a it's a nice nice community um I think the population now is like maybe 180,000. It was, you know, maybe a 130,000 when I was growing up there.
0: Yeah, well, I actually lived in Huntington when I worked for Anaheim. I lived in in Burbank first, and then I moved down to Huntington Beach after my son was born. Um, And, uh, yeah, we lived off... um, God, I forget the name now. Right on the Westminster and Huntington border, anyway. Um, okay, and it was it was beautiful, very very cool place. Obviously, there are some some areas that are less safe than others, but um, overall, sure. um, it was kind of a unique lens as well. Because I've noticed, and I know it's something you observed when you live in a beach town, the overall health of the population seems to be a lot higher. People are on the beach, they're surfing, they're swimming, they're they're mountain biking, they're skating. And so yes. I found there's just there was a higher energy, a higher appreciation of nature versus some of the the more
1: inland communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's you know a vibrant community. There's a lot of activities there, a lot of different things to do. You know, plenty of shopping, educational opportunities. You know, with the the community college and there's several community colleges and a, and a four year university within a short uh, driving distance. So. Um, it was a great place growing up. I had a really good childhood, you know, the dynamics of my family were, you know, we were the all American family, right? A mom, a dad, uh, one boy and one girl. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but you know, my parents were loving and nurturing, um, you know, due to the fact that my dad was in the ministry, my mom was a stay at home mom. I was kind of sheltered, you know, as a kid. Um, my my parents tried to protect me and didn't want me to really know about all of the, you know, the bad things in the world. So I, when I became a, a, a police explorer for Huntington Beach Police Department as a kid, I was 16, uh, and I started going on ride-alongs, that's when I started seeing the real world, you know, through the eyes of the police officers that I used to ride with.
0: Now, I want to get to that in a moment because I think mentorship is absolutely the answer to a lot of things that we're seeing, and and I'll I'll elaborate in a moment. But just before we do, growing up around the church, around Christianity, Mm -hmm. did that foster a, a, a deeply embedded faith? Or did it have, as we hear with some people, almost the opposite reaction where you kind of pushed away from it because you were around it the whole time?
1: you know uh, that's an excellent question and and thanks for asking that um you know i i grew up as a believer a believer in christ and you know the the holy trinity the father son the holy spirit but uh i you know as a young child you know i was i had a miracle happen in my life i was ran over by a pickup truck and and i survived you know it's and there's no other explanation other than you know god protected me however as i continued to grow into adulthood into my 20s um you know my focus was on um my career and um you know my my new marriage and starting a family and all of that and uh, god got left in the background i didn't have the relationship you know i was a religious guy i went to church because that, that's what supposed, you know, uh, good people do. Uh, but I didn't have the relationship, you know, I'd go on Sunday, I'd hear a great message. I'd, I'd you know, be walking on that pink cloud and, you know, uh, feeling good. And then I'd walk out of the church, <laughs> you know, go about my, my work week or whatever. And, um, all that stuff got, got left behind, you know? and. Um, I was very self-dependent. I didn't learn to um, depend on God, rely on God, and have a relationship with God until much, much later in life.
0: Yeah, see, it's interesting. I, I wasn't grow, uh, raised in a religious family per se, but they did more so put us into church. They weren't even going them, themselves that much, but they exposed it, and it was the— the um I guess the Protestant church, Church of England. Um, right. And, and I just didn't connect, you know, the, the, the songs were so depressing, you know, the stories <laughs> I loved, you know, I got the through lines of so many of these, you know, these, these tales that we were told, obviously in the Bible and I resonated with that. But to me, it was almost like the kind of depressive misery around that particular church. I mean, even the building was depressing. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, it's, and it's
0: England, so it's not like there's beautiful sun beaming through the stained glass windows either. Um, right. But so, you know, I had a disconnect. And again, it was really a kind of circle around for me, not so much with a specific faith, but just with understanding about, you know, compassion and kindness and love and, and, and doing what these prophets taught us rather than, as you said, I went to church, I put money on the plate. I'm golden, you know, so right, it's an interesting right. kind of perspective.
1: Yeah. I got my ticket punched. I'm good. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> All right. Well then Huntington beach, I want to get to the mentorship program, but just before we do, what about um, athletics?
1: What were you playing as a child? Oh, I, uh, I was on the baseball team, uh, in high school for a while and then, uh, for two, I was not really good at it. Um, I played center field and then, uh, Uh, I was in track for two years um, in high school, my junior and senior year. So I was a sprinter. That's back when I could run well, (laughs) much before, uh, long before age set in and all of that stuff. So those were the the sporting activities that I was involved in. Okay. Um, Yeah.
0: Beautiful. So when... The um, issue of diversity, you know, and that's almost like a, it's a nasty word these days, which is kind of crazy. But um, it's I think it's got this tarnish to it because many of us have worked in agencies where we're like, oh, we need more, you know, a minority X. And they just go out and they grab a bunch and they bring them in, some of whom end up being phenomenal, some of them not so much. And that grates people, especially if there are people from other backgrounds that maybe were more qualified, so that is not by any way shape or form in my opinion the answer but what is is going to underserved communities and mentoring we have a great um group here in in ocala where i live and they do um, a completely free fire mentorship program and they literally prepare these kids for fire school there's actually scholarships they line them up with you know coming out the other end the the departments here love them because they been so well-trained. And it sounds like that was obviously something that you kind of walked into when you were young. So talk to me about prior to that, if you had any kind of real career aspirations and then the impact of the Huntington Beach Explorer program on your road.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, when I was a little kid, uh, I used to think that I wanted to be a pastor like my dad, right? Uh, who was my role model growing up? Well, that would be my father. He was, you know, the only other male and figure in the household. And um, that's what he did. And I thought, oh yeah, that's what I want to do too. But, you know, as I started watching TV shows um about the police, um shows like Adam Twelve and The Rookies, that was from the late 70s, even Chips, which is totally fictional uh, oh it is but <laughs> uh, have but, you, you seen know, have I, you
0: seen the uh, just jump in have you seen the movie they made off chips the more recent one i did yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, i'm hoping that's fictional <laughs> yeah kind of goofy <laughs>
1: but but um yeah so you know I, I got introduced to law enforcement through television and i thought wow you know this looks really exciting um In my little, you know, ten or eleven-year-old brain, I was thinking, yeah, these guys have a mission; they have a um, purpose—to do good in the world, to do good in the community, to um, arrest bad guys and take them to jail, see that justice is served, you know, to help people, maybe save a life here and there, whatever. So, um, I became really interested in law enforcement as as a kid you know, 10 and 11 years old. And then, um, I remember, you know, when mm, I'd be out to dinner with my parents as a kid, sometimes, you know, police officers would be in the restaurant eating and I would just, I'd walk up to their table and I'd start talking to them. And, uh, fortunately none of them, you know, shoved me away or said, you know, go away kid. But, you know, I'd look at the uniform and all the stuff on their belt. And I was just fascinated by all of that. Um, So at that point, I began to think that maybe I wanted to go into law enforcement. And then when I was 15 and 16 years old, I decided pretty much that's the route that I'm going to take. So if I'm going to do this, I might as well join the police explore program in Huntington Beach and see what that that was all about. So
0: up to that point. You had no direction. So whether you're from an affluent um, background or a very you know poor background, at the end of the day, that mentorship was still needed for that wayward child.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Once I figured out um, the path that I or the direction that I was going to go in, um, you know, that Explorer program introduced me to the world of of law enforcement. And I was exposed to a lot of different things. Uh, and um, there were several people that uh, coordinated that program who were police officers, who were excellent, excellent mentors, great people to uh, go on ride-alongs with and, and, and talk about life in general. You know, real real life matters. And um, I learned a lot from those those folks. I really did.
0: Now, I want to kind of get into what that looked like. Before we do, I heard you in another interview, and it actually was a very good point, and it ties in because uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman wrote the foreword for your book, and he's been on the show a couple of times now. And one of his books, Assassination Generation, I think is is a very important read and a very important look at some of the violence, especially in our schools that we've seen. And I've talked about this a lot, the power of media, the power of television, for example, can be completely inspiring and it sent you into a path of law enforcement, but obviously there it can't be excluded as a as a variable, as, you know, one of the inputs of creating the opposite. You know, and you think about some of the violence that we have in, in our video games on, on the movies that you're going to go and relax by playing a guy that's murdering cops and, and prostitutes, or, you know, watching a, a cabin full of teenagers mutilated by some psychopath in the woods. You know, you have to take a step back and look at that. Yes, it can be incredibly inspiring, but at the same time, there's a the dark underbelly to that as well.
1: Oh, most definitely. Um, you know, we, we didn't have any of that when I was growing up. We had television. Um there were no video games except for like Pong. You know, you watch the little ball go back and forth and <laughs> you have the little knobs with the with the, the paddles. It's like playing tennis on your TV. And then we had like Atari Space Invaders. That was a more modern version of a video game at the time, but we didn't have all of this this violence uh you know that we see today on uh television and in in video games and, and everywhere you go everywhere you look in in the written media and uh television, you see it all over the place um like you said uh you know these video games where you're murdering cops you know you're you're shooting people in the face and watching their head explode you know it's we unfortunately become desensitized to it, where people become so accustomed to it, they think that's normal behavior. You know, the problem lies in when they cross over from, you know, emulating what they're doing in that video game and they apply it to real life.
0: Yeah. And I think Lieutenant Colonel Grossman does a great job of explaining One thing that people don't think about, I will put my hand up and be as one of the people early on when they said, oh, violence, you know, video games is causing you know these issues when I was younger. I'm like, I was rolling my eyes the same as everyone else. But now (laughs) being mature, being in the first responder profession, understanding that, you know, take the lone wolf. They're already, you know, probably had childhood trauma. They're probably feeling isolated. They have no tribe. They're playing video games all the time. Therefore, they're sleep deprived. They're on their psych meds. And you've got this perfect storm of mental ill health and that line between fiction and reality now becomes very blurred. And you see that with the behavior with almost like trying to outscore the active shooter prior to them. So, I mean, it's anyone that's listening, if you haven't read that book and you have children, especially, or you're a teacher or anything like that, or you just care, I I think, you know, that's an absolute must read.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, he... Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, he's a prolific writer, as you know. Um, uh, I think the first book that I read of his was uh, on combat um, and then on killing. And uh, the latest one that he uh, uh, was a collaborative effort with uh, Adam Davis was uh, on spiritual combat. So I highly recommend all of those, especially in your, you know, if you're uh, in the military profession or first responder field,
0: absolutely. Well, back to the mentorship program. So, um, you guys did a lot, the same as these these fire, you know, mentor um, young men and women do it in, in this one here. I mean, they're teaching them how to be firefighters. So, what did that look like from a law enforcement perspective when you were a child?
1: Well, there were the. Um, I'm try I think our meetings were once a uh, not once a month, but once a week on Thursday evenings at the police station, and we would have uh, different classes that they would put us through. but before the classes would start, they would have us um, forming out in this this patio area next to the training room outside um, and we'd be in formation and then, the uh, explore advisors would come by and do uniform inspections, and you know, quiz us on our knowledge and ask us, you know, to recite certain radio codes or penal code sections or whatever. And then uh, after that, we would typically file into the classroom. And um, I remember having a report writing class. I remember one of the classes that they put on; it was fascinating. They had one of the crime scene texts come in, and uh, they taught us how to dust for latent fingerprints. Um, we learned crime scene photography and some other you know forensic type stuff. That was really interesting. Uh, and then we had a uh, firearm safety course, and they brought actual Smith and Wesson Model nineteens into the classroom. and we were able to to handle them. and um, they explained, the working mechanisms of a firearm and the the mechanics and the physics of it, you know, the rifled barrel, the, you know, the firing pin, it's attached to a hammer. It strikes a primer. It causes a small explosion, which ignites a larger explosion within the casing. The rifling is there so that the the bullet doesn't tumble when it comes out the barrel, you know, all of that stuff. Um, it was really interesting, even counterfeiting. They, they uh, taught us how to spot, uh, uh, you know, currency wasn't as, as sophisticated as it is today where they have these little, like, I don't know what they are, magnetic strips or something in them. And uh, it was very basic back then. So we were, we were trained and taught how to spot, you know, counterfeits and stuff like that. It was, I learned a lot. It was really interesting. And of course, the icing on the cake was always the ride along always the ride along you know working a riding a a 10-hour shift with a police officer and seeing what they do on that shift and you know sometimes things would be potentially too dangerous so they would tell us to stay in the car while they went inside and handled the call or whatever but uh, I really got to I got exposed to a lot of different things on those ride-alongs
0: well and that it's such a powerful tool. My, my bonus boy, my stepson, tried the, the fire mentorship program. I think he did it for several months, and it helped him decide he didn't want to be a firefighter. Beautiful. What a great tool to help try to channel the, um, you know, the career aspirations as well. So that's the thing. Even if, even if they don't end up doing that profession, it helps expose them to you know, first responder life or you know, law enforcement life, whatever it is, and then either head that way or check it off the list. But either way, it's such a powerful tool.
1: Right. Most definitely. Most definitely. You know, I, I teach a class now um, up at Northern Arizona University It's Psychological uh, Survival for Law Enforcement. And um, that class is deliberately uh, put on during the first week of their their training. And, uh, you know, most of the, the people that are in the class, they're there because they want to be a law enforcement park ranger. Um, for the national park service or, or other uh, resource agencies that have law enforcement officers. So, you know, I give them a little, uh, my two cents and the little spiel. It's like, you may see and hear things today that, um, that you don't like that may cause you concern, you know, things that they don't tell you in the brochure, you know, like, uh, you know, you may, you're, you're going to be in fights. Uh, You're going to be exposed to danger. You're going to be exposed to trauma and grief and death and uh, you know, mangled bodies, violence. Um, You could be killed. Um, You know, you may uh, start self-medicating with alcohol or some other type of substance um, because you think it's going to help get you through. Uh, It's like, know this stuff now. Um, So, we expose that to the students within the first week of the class, and I tell them, you know what, um, you may start this program and you may not finish. You may decide that it's not for you, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's good. Actually, you've now eliminated something that um, could potentially be dangerous to you and your your partners, your teammates, because if your heart's not into it. Uh, you know, your heart, soul and mind, um, you're not going to be effective out there doing your job.
0: Yeah. I think it takes more courage to say, yeah, it's not for me. And you know, that's right. It's an admirable trait. Absolutely. So walk me through then from, from that chapter through to your first actual position in law enforcement.
1: Uh, well, after the Explorer program, I was hired as a police cadet, uh, for the city of Huntington beach. And, uh, that was a paid position. Um, You must be enrolled uh, in college uh, with a full course load. I think 12 semester units was the minimum uh, course load that you can carry. So during the, uh, well, when school was in session, you worked 24 hours a week at the police department. And then during summer break, um, you worked a 40-hour work week at the police department. So I did various things uh, like working at the front desk, answering phones, greeting the public, uh, handling, uh, uh, minor crimes, taking, uh, uh, like vehicle burglary reports and, you know, things like that. And then, um, I was assigned to the jail for a while, the city jail. Um, and I did, uh, the duties of a de- detention officer. And then, um, I was assigned to our traffic bureau and, uh, I would respond to, traffic collisions and I direct traffic and, you know, do parking enforcement and that type of thing. And then um, I had to test for uh, the position of police recruit while I was a police cadet. Um, the purpose of the cadet program was obviously to go into a law enforcement position. So um, they gave a preference uh, to, Huntington Beach police cadets who were then re- you know, of, of age and ready to start their career. They gave us preference when we went through the testing process over outside candidates.
0: Now, so, with with the academy, one area, because it's going to pay in a little bit um, later, what did defensive tactics look like, you know, the
1: unarmed element back then when you went first you first went oh, through? Oh, man. Yeah, back then. Uh, <laughs> That was 30, let's see, 36 years ago. Um, I know that um, uh, Koga was one of the techniques they taught us. Um, And then also uh, Filipino Escrima, which is a stick fighting um, uh, technique used for the the police baton. Because back in the day, we didn't have uh, these expandable batons and all of that. You know, all of us carried a a wooden straight baton, uh, through the Academy. So we learned essentially how to do, uh, blocking maneuvers, uh, from an assailant's, uh, you know, an assailant trying to strike us. Um, and then we did, um, we didn't really get into the grappling that, that came later. Um, but we were taught, you know, how to, um, place suspects into a position of disadvantage, you know, using verbal commands and then if that didn't work we'd go hands-on and maybe use some kind of a restraint hold or and then if that failed you know do a a a takedown a physical takedown on the individual because once they're placed onto the ground they're in in a position of disadvantage um in order to be handcuffed and then of course if that didn't work uh, we went through the uh use of force continuum you know okay uh my mayor presence failed, verbal commands failed, restraint holds failed. Uh, then we go to like pepper spray or a baton. Um, tasers weren't really a thing back then. And uh, that, that that's essentially it in a nutshell.
0: Okay. So then walk me forward through Huntington Beach because I know, you know, you were very transparent about, you know, what happened there. And it's it's funny because a friend of, A new friend, someone I just I just met, um, a very well-respected firefighter around here. Um, His son kind of went through the same thing. He was young. He he kind of found himself in the first responder profession. He was kind of from this very respected lineage and didn't handle it well. Almost lost his job. So let's talk about that. The young recruit with you know now has power and money. Um, You know how that can, if we're not quite at the point mentally of of being ready for that position how it can kind of find find us becoming off the rails uh, of a profession that we need to stay firmly on the rails
1: yeah absolutely uh you know i was young i was 21 when i graduated the academy went into the field training program uh and now i i'm a young 20 year old 21 year old kid i was a kid you know in retrospect when i look back at myself you know, I, I honestly think, man, I was way too young, you know, to, to handle it. Um, I didn't have the maturity. I didn't have the life experience, you know, everything I learned about the world eventually was in my law enforcement career, but, uh, I, I was off to a rough start. I really was. I was a, uh, you know, average, if not mediocre trainee, um, You know, I didn't. I I was a baby-faced kid, so I had to overcompensate for my youthful appearance. You know, when I'd go to these domestic violence calls, uh, I'm a single kid. You know, uh, newly uh, newly sprung from the nest, right? You know, it's like, oh, I just, you know, moved out from living with my parents and now I'm going into some guy's home and he's having a domestic squabble and he's been married for five or 10 years and has children. You know, I can't relate to anybody like that. And now I'm trying to tell this individual how to run his life and what he should be doing. And, you know, uh, maybe you should leave the house and cool off. And um, so it, it was it was shaky. It was shaky you know my appearance uh didn't help my lack of maturity didn't help um you know i uh uh worked with you know there were guys uh, seasoned veterans within the police department and you know they had that macho go get them uh mentality um and they worked hard and they played hard and you know um th- to put it you know bluntly you know a, a lot of those guys would go and party after work you know they they drank quite a bit um so that's that's what i grew up with in the profession it's like oh people you know these guys are respected veterans of the police department and they're you know they're partiers so it must be okay you know so um i kind of started going down that path you know when i was in my early 20s and then uh Eventually, you know, I got married at, at the age of 23 and and that, you know, the drinking calmed down uh, quite a bit, you know, especially after I had uh, the the birth of my first child.
0: So I know you were, you know, ultimately given an ultimatum at Huntington Beach to to resign or face consequences. So I think that's an important part of the story because yes. you were given a second chance, you know, and I think that's. That's something that I don't think we're very good at in in you know, a many many countries. You know, oh, well, you're an addict now, or you were, you know, drunk or whatever. So that's mm-hmm. it. You can never work in X, Y, or Z. And I disagree with that. We make mistakes. We, we're a product a lot of times of you know many many elements. So you know, tell me about that decision. You know, what forced you out of that department, and then let's transition into to how you were given a second chance.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, So I was, uh, you know, called down to the training sergeant's office one day, I I showed up to work and was ready to, you know, hit the streets. And um, they assigned me to the front desk. And I thought, well, that's strange. You know, I'm supposed to be out in the field today. Well, um, unbeknownst to me, they had already decided, you know, to to terminate me. Um, So I was called down to the uh they they had an officer from the field come in to the front desk and relieve me i went downstairs to the the training office met with the fto sergeant and uh he basically said hey look uh you're not doing so well um uh, your off duty behavior uh especially when you're on probation um is is uh you know verging on egregious <laughs> you know you should know better um so basically Uh, very candidly it's like we're either going to fire you or you can uh here's a a a sheet of memo paper and you can type out your resignation and we will you know uh, it'll go down as a, a a resignation so but essentially i was you know i i resigned in lieu of termination um and you know i was i was devastated i thought my career was over with um you know, that I would never uh, be hired by another law enforcement agency again. Um, And, uh, you know, that's all I wanted to do since, you know, from the time I was, you know, 11 or 12 years old, it's like, I want to go into law enforcement. And then I knew when I was 16 and entered the police explore program, that was my calling. So it's like, okay, um, if this is my purpose in life, and now <laughs> I'm no longer doing it. Um, and I resigned under, you know, not great circumstances. How am I going to get a second chance? So, um, I contacted an Academy mate of mine who was working for a community college, uh, police department in Norwalk, uh, California. And, uh, he told me they had an open position and, uh, um, that he would talk to his Lieutenant, um, about me and the circumstances. And, um, you know, I really, really, um, tried to mature. I tried to, you know, brush up on the things that, um, I knew I was having a hard time with in the field training program. So I tried to improve those skills and, uh, I was invited, uh, in for an interview and, um, Long story short, I, I got the job. Uh, I, I, you know, I went into the chief's office there at Cerritos College, um, college district, police department. The chief said, hey, we're going to give you a chance. You know, um, Hopefully these issues you've had before won't surface. And you know, hopefully you've learned from your mistakes. Um, we're going to give you this opportunity. So um, I, I got hired. Um, I did really well in that agency. I mean, it's, it's a community college district. All right. We had campuses throughout, you know, the Norwalk area of Los Angeles County. So it wasn't a high speed thing where you're going to domestic violence calls and this and that, but, you know, it really gave me an opportunity to learn and excel and um, brush up in the areas um, where I was deficient uh, as a trainee at Huntington beach. So, um, I did that for a while and then the adrenaline junkie in young Keith started to rear its head. It's like, yeah, this is kind of boring. Um, I think I want to go back to a city. Uh, so, um, I started, uh, applying at different agencies. Um, by this time now I had moved to, uh, South Orange County. Um, the Laguna Hills area and Laguna Beach had their own police department, which was a neighboring city. So I applied there and I ultimately got uh, picked up by Laguna Beach PD as a police officer.
0: So that's where the defensive tactics going to come back in again. So tell me about the DTAC training for that department, because obviously there's there's a, a reason why, Training or lack thereof you know ties in with with how you left that department,
1: sure um, we really we really didn 't have at that time now this is you know the eighties this is um, eighty seven through ninety one that I was at Laguna, the only defensive tactic training that I recall having at Laguna Beach, um, aside from the stuff that I originally got in my basic police academy. Um, the Laguna Beach was, I think, one of the only, if not the only agency in Orange County to carry um, what's called the OPN, the Orcutt Police Nunchuck. We carried these these nunchucks and we trained with them and we learned how to put uh, people in wrist locks with with these nunchucks uh, with a nylon cord. Uh, you know, they were black. They were like a black composite material with two black nylon cords. You can do all kinds of things, you know, pain compliance holds and this and that. That's the only um, training that I recall as far as defensive tactics goes is when they uh, made all of us carry, you know, certify and and carry the the OPN.
0: See, that's interesting because – even though we can, you know, walk around with firearms in this country, nunchucks were on the the banned list. I don't know if they still are, but for the longest time, you know. So to, they uh, were. my image of a police officer getting out of their patrol car and then starting to <laughs> wall around a set of nunchucks, I wish I could have seen that. That would have been <laughs> pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, it was uh, different. Uh, definitely a learning curve. But, um, yeah, that OPN was developed guy by a – I think a police sergeant who worked for some agency in Colorado and he came up with this thing and marketed it and it became really big in the, you know, the mid to late eighties and then it just kind of faded away, especially when, you know, with the evolution of the taser and and all of that.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's it. So I want to get to, to the, that one arrest in a second, but when we see not the, the worst case not the Derek Chauvin's and all those who I think regardless of you know backstories and stuff at that moment that was an epic failure of communication training you know whatever it was um you know someone someone died and many other people lost their careers and and freedom because of that one moment sure but a lot of these gray areas especially um You know, you have that single, as you mentioned, one cop. The fact that we have one to a car in so many departments blows my mind. But you have one cop. Let's say that they're not the smallest of individuals. And then they come up against that former linebacker, you know, Mm -hmm. guy on PCP. It, it's it's crazy you know when you think about not you're not even just fighting them you're you're having to put cuffs on them that's a whole level of you know of of um combat that most people will never have to overcome but sure. the training the environment that we put them in the first place is very important so and then it's never mentioned in the media especially you know, obviously this is a huge hot topic at the moment oh yeah so talk to me about That one arrest and then, you know, it was kind of when video cameras were still starting to come out as well. So and then how that factored into you, whether you were supported by a department or the opposite.
1: Sure. Uh, So in 1990, I think it was June of 90, uh, I was working graveyard shift um, at the time and um, it was maybe 10 p.m. Uh, there was a a call of a, a disturbance at a party, a large gathering um, in the south end of Laguna Beach, off of uh, South South Coast Highway. Um, so two units were sent to this call, and I was driving along and uh, hear a, a call for help over the radio. One of the uh, officers that was at that party call asked for Code Three backup and. Um, you know, that's code three, lights and siren, you know. Um, and it's uh, you know, it's not your normal routine request for backup. His voice was elevated and he wants emergency backup. So a bunch of us roll uh down to this scene. Um we tried to clear out the party. Um people, some of the party goers gathered across the street at a Seven Eleven. Um, store uh, on the other side of pacific coast highway well there was a um, this planter area this large planter area where the 7-eleven sign was in the middle and then there were some like shrubs or bushes or whatever but there were there were big rocks um, in this planter well the people that gathered in the parking lot started picking up rocks and started hurling them across pacific coast highway at us they were chucking rocks at us and it's like uh, you know what we need to get out of here um, maybe if we leave in a hurry you know maybe these people will you know go away you know <laughs> maybe they'll disperse um, but there was this one guy who had uh, multiple warrants for his arrest and he was one of the instigators and he was a frequent flyer, what we call a frequent flyer. He was known to us. He's been arrested, you know, multiple times. Um, he was, uh, on parole, um, for some serious felony. And, uh, anyway, when we went to take him into custody, he went down to the ground. He, uh, tucked his, uh, hands underneath his his body and he was face down on the pavement well there was a an officer on on one on each side tugging on his arms trying to get his arms to break free uh so that they could you know place him in handcuffs get his hands behind his back well that wasn't working and people are still getting more and more hostile towards us it's like man we got to get out of here so um I kicked the guy in his upper right arm. I put the boot to him and uh, I told him to put his effing hands behind his back. And um, it worked. Um, it startled him enough um, to where the officers were able to, you know, get his his hands to break free and behind his back. So uh, long story short, he was placed in handcuffs and, um, you know, off to jail we went. Um, uh, unbeknownst to me, six months later, um, a videotape surfaces where, uh, I'm shown, you know, my, the, my upper body is shown. You can't see him on the ground. Okay. Um, but he's on the ground. He's behind a, a police car. The field of view of this video camera is, there's the hood of a police car, he's on the ground, and then you see my, my upper body step into the, the frame, and I make three kicking motions, and I you know, yell at him and tell him to put his hands behind his back. So that became a big uh, to-do. Um, the suspect ultimately uh, got an attorney, and he tried to claim that I kicked him in the face, which that didn't happen. Um, He was even medically cleared for booking um, and they said, yeah, he had a, an abrasion on his face from when he went down to the sidewalk because the other two officers took him down hard, but um, he tried to claim that, you know, uh, I injured him. And and the sad thing is you couldn't, you couldn't see it because, you know, all you see is my upper body. So uh, anyway. So I'm put on admin leave, administrative leave, while they uh, uh, conduct a personnel investigation. Um, they submitted it to the Orange County grand jury uh, to see if, you know, there's any evidence that I committed a crime, you know, assault under the uh, color of authority. Well, the grand jury uh, refused to um, indict me um, or file Uh, any type of charges they're like "Ah, there's no evidence here so then a lawsuit's filed um this guy wanted to get some money out Uh, he was indigent he wanted to get some money out of the city well while this whole investigation is going on the rodney king thing happens that becomes a big media circus and that videotape was shown and then in 1991 now it's 91 and then um uh, a lot of the media coverage that Rodney King was getting, it it they got a hold of the video that I'm in, and now they're playing the incident that I was in involved in. They're like, oh, we have this thing in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, and here's LAPD brutalizing a guy, and then in Laguna Beach, you know, in other news, in Laguna Beach, this happens, and then you know, because video cameras were becoming a thing, so any other. Uh, uh, videotape police incident involving force they started playing those on the news well anyway long story short the investigation's over um uh, there's nothing criminal there uh and the i'm served with a notice of termination that says my use of force was not in compliance with uh, Laguna Beach's policy so i'm terminated and uh, I was in a testing process with another agency at that time, too. I had to put all that on hold because, you know, because of the personnel investigation.
0: Now, you, you talk about, I mean, that's exactly, you know, I think a very powerful perspective. You have one, you know, not only I think a kick to the arm I don't think anyone would, would, you know, would object to that. And, you know, the Rodney King thing was absolutely one of those black and white incidences that was completely wrong. And again, you know, a, a product of probably poor training, the tension between police and, you know, some of the the gangs and all that stuff. And, you know, the, just they created that perfect storm and it was completely wrong. And a bunch of people circling around one guy of any color creed and just taking it in turns to, to, to hit him with a baton is not trying to detain a suspect you know no one no one can argue for that but then that's the problem all these other cases get scooped up and brought into the fray as well so um ultimately d- d- is the the lawsuit rebuked as well
1: uh the uh suspect got a hundred thousand dollars from really? the city yeah they settled out of court and then of course his attorney got a large uh chunk of that
0: yes they they they, they do <laughs> um, okay, well, I want to fast forward. So, so you worked as a, as a ranger for a little bit and then you found yourself yes. in Butte County. Um, you know, obviously, where there's so many little elements of, of, of trauma in different shapes and forms that are starting to build up now i don't want to say because i'm a fellow responder oh what's the worst calls you had i think what out of respect i think what would be very pertinent would be to hear um the stories of the two officers that you lost so starting with randy um tell me tell me about randy and tell me about that call
1: uh randy jennings was a a tenured uh deputy i think he had nine years on the job um he was uh well-respected, well-respected, um, well-liked, um, dependable, reliable. Um, in addition to being a patrol deputy, uh, he was also on the SWAT team. So um, at, at Butte County, you know, it was a smaller sheriff's department. So they, we did not have a full-time SWAT team um, like in some of the other larger agencies. That's That's all you do. You're a SWAT guy. So his collateral duty was as a SWAT officer. So, um, May 21st, 1997, um, I'm working swing shift. I'm now promoted. I'm a newly, uh, promoted Sergeant. I had like seven months, um, in my position. So I was still learning how to do, you know, supervision and do my new job, uh, be a supervisor. And, um, I went on a It was a busy, busy, busy shift. I mean, there was a lot going on, a lot of activity. We had some major stuff happen when I first went on duty um, that I dealt with. And then I remember the the press was hounding me to put out a press release for this. There was a, a pursuit and a foot bail of an armed guy. And then we had helicopters and stuff up in the air looking for this guy. And we ultimately captured him and the the news was hounding me for a statement to put out a press release, uh, but we were so busy, I had to help out with calls um, for service. So in the early evening, um, I went on a, it was a domestic dispute involving um, a teenager and the parents. And um, so I went as a backup unit. Randy Jennings went as the primary uh, deputy and uh, when we got there we determined that the kid had taken off taken off on foot essentially you know ran away from home so um the situation had stabilized there was no threat or anything so Randy stayed behind at the residence and took a runaway juvenile report i cleared the scene and um noticed I was pretty low on gas. I had to you know fuel up my patrol car, get back to the the county pumps and uh so I uh linked up with uh one of my deputies, Jim Norman, at the gas pumps, and we were talking about you know maybe trying to grab something to eat um you know and, it, and now it's getting late it's like um quarter till ten p m at night and it's dark. We, we hadn't eaten yet. We hadn't had a chance to. So we're talking about dinner. You know? And uh, we get a domestic violence call. Uh, Jim gets the domestic violence call. Um, supposedly a subject, uh, a male Asian, was chasing a female Asian, and, and he had a firearm. So um, there's nobody to back him up, and I'm with him at the gas pumps. I'm like, well... I'll, I'll back, I'll back him up. I'll be the second unit. So we drive over to this house. Um, there are, um, a bunch of kids in the house. I don't know, five or six kids and, uh, no parents to be found. Um, and we found, we discovered that, uh, the eldest son, uh, was the spokesperson for all of the kids. He said, uh, Oh, my father uh, doesn't have a gun. there." You know, they both left. They're out on foot in the neighborhood somewhere. So I get a a description. Um, We we check, you know, we clear the house, make sure there's no threat, nobody else inside. I get a description. I put it out over the radio. Um, And then uh, Jim and I briefly um, discuss what we were going to do. So Jim um, decided to stay at the house and gather more information from the children. And I decided I was going to go out into the neighborhood and drive around and try to find these people. So, uh, I drive, uh, South and, um, on 10th street. And I come up to the intersection of 10th and grand where there's a church, uh, on the corner. And, uh, I hear Randy get on the radio. He had cleared the runaway juvenile call. Randy said, Hey, I have the Asian male at, at the church behind the church here at 10th and grand. And I'm like, well, I'm right here, I'm right here. So I bust through the intersection, pull into the parking lot, and now I can see the the guy, the suspect running behind the church through this field. and um, you know the the only illumination in the parking lot were our our high beams from our our cars and you know the spotlights and Originally, they were shining on the guy where you know his original position. Now he's running out into the darkness, into this field. So uh, uh, we put out that we're in uh, foot pursuit. We're running southbound through this field behind the church, and um, where it's it's getting darker and darker. Where we're running, and there's an olive tree in the middle of this field. Well, the guy, the suspect. Um, we lose sight of him he disappears behind this olive tree and then all of a sudden i you know the speed of light is faster than the speed of sound so i start i start seeing muzzle flash from behind this tree and then i hear the the gunfire and you know in my mind everything like slowed down it's like almost like i was questioning myself like is this really happening you know uh and it's like yes this is really happening um i see randy randy was running in front of me he was probably he had an 80 foot head start on me i see randy go down so i'm thinking he's hit and uh i put out over the air you know the the all call for help code and you know tell dispatch shots fired you know officer down and and all of that stuff um i heard rounds going past my head as well. I mean, very close to me. So I'm thinking, okay, Randy's hit and, and now the guy's shooting at me. So I drop, um, in, in this field, um, and there's dried like tall grass. It was May and, and the weather was very warm. So, um, it was, you know, kind of dry. Um, I drop into this tall grass, And I rolled about five feet and then I popped back up. And by this time I have my pistol unholstered. uh, But as I'm rolling, I hear more gunfire. So I pop back up with my pistol and I get on my front sight, and I'm looking for the threat to return fire. And now there's dead silence. The only thing I can hear are sirens in the background coming to me, you know, coming to aid us. Um, So, people get there fairly quickly. Um, Jim Norman got there. He was one of the first ones. uh, That was the deputy that was, you know, at the house. Um, He broke free from that, came over to my location, and then a highway patrol officer heard the call for help. um, And uh, he arrived. And then one of my canine handlers, we all went into the field looking for, A, the threat, because, you know, we need to focus on that. But our other objective is we don't know Randy's condition. I'm pretty sure he's hit, uh, you know, tried to raise him on the radio and he's not talking anymore. Um, so we need to get him out of there and get him medical attention. So we find the suspect first. Um, he appears to be deceased. Um, somebody, I don't remember who, placed him in handcuffs. Uh, handcuffed him it's just a procedural thing whether he's deceased or not you know and then we needed to focus our attention on randy and in his condition we found randy's body about 10 feet from the suspect couldn't find any holes or, or anything like that um so tore his shirt open pulled the front panel of his vest off and um there was a a bullet wound right um right above where the Kevlar stopped the top part of his vest and uh, below his neckline. And, um, that was, that was the fatal round. He was actually hit five times. He was actually hit five times, uh, once through his wrist, it blew his wristwatch off. Um, and then, um, twice in the front panel and then the fatal round that I just mentioned. And then he took a round in the back panel as well, because he was in motion and running when the shooting began. So when he was hit, when he went down, his body kind of twisted and then his back was exposed to the suspect. So he was hit in the back as well. Now, uh, the, the additional gunfire that I heard when I was, um, when I had dropped and rolled, um, that was actually Randy returning fire. Randy was able to, get uh multiple rounds off he did hit the suspect he hit randy hit the suspect and uh and then the suspect ended up committing suicide the coup de grace was self-inflicted by the suspect himself he shot himself and killed himself um my deputies uh initiated cpr i called for a lifelight helicopter you know the helicopter landed um Carted him off to Enloe Hospital in Chico, and um, you know people started showing up at the scene, setting up crime scene tape, and then I was driven back to the station. my My patrol car stayed um, on scene as part of the crime scene, and I was driven back to the station. And then uh, Jim Norman, I ended up meeting him back at the station. We were sequestered because we were going to be interviewed by, you know, the shooting team investigators. And, uh, you know, it was one of the worst nights of my life, you know, in my career. Yeah, well,
0: I'm sure. Well, firstly, I mean, what incredible heroism from Randy, because obviously, you know, not only is he preserving you, you know, I mean, himself, he knows that you're there as well. So to take that much damage and still return fire is the kind of heroism that we need to hear and each each of these Absolutely. officers that we've lost we need to keep telling their story you know we need to remind because the the rhetoric at the moment is so nauseating i mean there's there's local officers brandon coates is one that always um you know jumps to mind he left one of our fire stations did a traffic stop 3 minutes after ended up being shot and he, he actually had deployed his taser and the person executed him. Oh. And then that crew from the station then ran on, ran on him, you know. So, yeah. you know, this is the real world. This is the actual fucking thing that people, you know, the, the, the sacrifice that our men and women in uniform make. And of course there are rotten apples amongst us. And the sure. way, you know, the way that we get rid of that is we keep our hiring standards high. We keep our annual standards high, you know, and do it that way, not not hang the entire profession out to dry and threaten to take their money away. I mean, one Mm -hmm. to a car indicates to me that you're not overfunded, (laughs) you're underfunded, (laughs) you know? Um, now before I want to get to, you know, the, the aftermath for you personally, but before we do in that moment, having read on combat and on killing, did you experience some of the the things that, um, Dave Grossman writes about?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and I didn't read, I didn't read those books until probably 2010-ish, uh, and this happened long before, you know, that time in 97, but after reading it, in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, I experienced uh, most of these symptoms, you know, if not all of them uh, at one time or another. Um, you know, I, I it, it, it was a long and grueling night. Um, I started my shift at uh, 3 p.m. I didn't get home until I don't know eight or nine in the morning. Um, and at one point, I decided I need to I need to go to sleep. I need to try to get some sleep. I'm mentally, emotionally, and physically exhausted. Um, and it's that adrenaline jump. It's that you know that fight or flight thing, and and you get that adrenaline jump, and then uh, a dump, and then when you're coming down from it, it just wipes you out so i I lay down in my bed, tried to go to sleep as soon as i dozed off i I immediately started hearing gunfire in my sleep um, you know in nineteen ninety seven um the term post traumatic stress wasn't really a buzzword like it is today um I didn't know what it was, but I know it sucked and and i didn't i didn't like it um so it it woke me up um and I started sweating profusely. Um, You know, I I was having trouble sleeping. Um, I wasn't sleeping at all. Um, And and I had just gone through a divorce. So I was in my house by myself um, with nothing but my thoughts. Um, I was placed off work until they could get me into the psychologist to clear me to go back to work. So all I did is sit in the house and cry you know i cried i was alone in my mind in my dark mind with my thoughts and um you know no sleep uh, uh and we and you know sleep is everything um sleep af- you know affects so much um uh, i felt absolutely miserable um i wasn't focused i wasn't sharp um i just i cried i cried like a baby um and I knew I had been through something traumatic, you know, I mean, Randy was the victim, you know, I'm like, I'm like collateral damage or residual damage. Randy was the one that paid the ultimate price, you know, um, and, and he was heroic, you know, I I was there and I suffered the residual effects from it. And I, I just, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, I've been shot at before, but nothing happened. It was like a nothing deal. It's like, you know, uh, a drive by type of thing. And two of us got indiscriminate rounds fired at us. And that was it. You know, um, this was the real deal. This was like the, the big one, what we call the big one that you train for. It's like, I, I knew that something like this could happen. I knew that, you know, someday I may have to use lethal force. Um, but, um, part of me was pissed too that was one of the emotions i i experienced i i was pissed because i was i was so angry i remember not only feeling the sorrow over randy's death but i i just remember this rage and anger within me um uh, that i couldn't shake um i mean within the first hour of of this incident um i'm like i want to uh You know, I wanted to be able to return fire, but Randy was in between me and the bad guy. And then when I popped back up, the shooting had stopped. There was, there was no sight picture. There was no threat. It's like, we got to find the suspect and Randy and you know, see their conditions. So I don't know. I just, I wanted a piece of the suspect, you know, I'm thankful Randy did what he did, you know, um, Randy posthumously received the, uh, the Medal of Valor for his actions that night. Um, but I was, I was angry. I was an emotional basket case. Um, I was hypervigilant. Um, the first time I went to, a, um, it was some kind of a celebration, and it was a few weeks after the shooting, and somebody popped the cork on a um, champagne bottle and, and I about went through the the ceiling. It freaked me out. It sounded like gunfire at first. It just, it's like, oh man, I'm, I'm screwed up in the head, but I didn't want to tell anybody that, you know, I, I tried to press on. It's like, when you fall off a horse, you get back on the saddle and you ride it again. I had 11 years into the profession and, um, I thought well i've gone this far you know i want to i want to try to make it to retirement you know this is my calling i'm not a quitter i don't want to quit you know um i need to i need to suck it up and move move on so eventually i got cleared um within a week to see a contract psychologist down in sacramento and um and you know i just pretended like everything was hunky-dory like i'm i'm fine i'm not phased by this yes it's tragic yes it's it's terrible yes i'm sad but you know i'm totally fine to go back to work and they checked the box and i went back to work
0: now obviously you know we you know whatever it is now 20 years ago I think there was a lot more belief in the whole rub some dirt in it, suck it up, don't be a pussy, you know all that mm-hmm. that stuff. Was yep. that rife where you were as well? Was was mental health still viewed as weakness?
1: Yes. Yes. Now the department did what they could at the time. They did what you know they thought was best, and it was good that they did it. Um, we had a critical kind of a critical incident stress debriefing where I was invited into this very large room and there were, you know, obviously um, we had, well, before this, we hadn't had an officer or a deputy killed in the line of duty in, in decades and decades. So this is all new to everybody. You know, everybody's traumatized. It It reached to the levels of all personnel within the agency. So we had this debriefing. I was invited into the room. I told my story, you know, what happened. And we all had a chance to talk about Randy, um, you know, what a guy he was. Um, and, and, you know, there was no mental health professional there. It was just kind of facilitated by a department member. It's like, well, let's try to all commiserate together and maybe it'll get us through as an organization. But they didn't they didn't have a, you know, a psychologist or therapist come in and and facilitate it.
0: So you've pushed it down like so many of us do. Is yeah, and you've mentioned about drinking before and obviously that was kind of behind some of the the stuff earlier in your career too. Did you find yourself self medicating at that point?
1: You know I did, but not not to the extent that I did later on in, in life. Um, you know, that early that morning, um, a couple of deputies from another shift, um, they, I heard a knock on my door. I opened it up. It was, you know, two deputies from a different shift and they're like, Oh, Hey, Hey, Sarge. You know, they threw their arms around me and we all cried. We just, they brought, they brought a bottle of booze with them and we just, we sat there drinking. That was before I tried to go to sleep that that first you know that first day um so yeah you know i the drinking started after i got home kind of tapered off maybe the you know um emotions you know i spent some time at the department um i think there were two of those two of those debriefings that we did um one was for one shift and another was for a different shift and you know whoever else needed to attend So I tried to keep myself busy with that. But when I was uh, alone, you know, in my dark with my dark thoughts, you know, um, I'm I'm pretty sure I I ran to the store and and bought a bottle, you know, but I didn't. um, (laughs) It wasn't as bad as it was later on in life.
0: Yeah. Well, I want I want to get to that point because obviously that's a pivotal point in your story. But before we do, I want to make sure we talk about Larry as well. So you had sure. you know you hadn't had a line of duty death for all those decades, and then you have two within a few years of each other. So same question. Tell tell me who Larry was, and then
1: um, you know what happened to him. Larry Estes, um, who was just a fantastic guy. Again, you know it's <laughs> it's it's never the jerks. You know they they say the good die young um well larry estes um he, he wasn't young he but he was a year out from retirement um when when this happened but Larry was my sergeant at at Butte county he was the field training sergeant um uh, he uh appointed me as a field training officer. Uh, Before I promoted to sergeant, Um, I worked directly for him in the community oriented policing program, which was started by a different sergeant who left and went to a different agency. And then Larry took over the the cops uh, program. So I worked for him. Great guy, uh, just compassionate, um, a cop's cop. Um, You know, I mean, I think he was in his I want to say he was like sixty one. Uh, without any information in front of me at the moment i can't I can't tell you how old he was. I want to say he was sixty one when he died um, but uh, by this time I had left uh, uh Butte County Sheriff's Department. I had gone through you know my divorce and then I had two daughters at the time and child child custody issues are basically the reason I left Butte County. And And moved back to Southern California because my my wife or my ex-wife at the time had moved back and gotten her old job back with uh, Orange County Sheriff's Department. So I'm like, well, once school starts for my eldest daughter, I'm not going to be able to spend any time with them. I need to I need to relocate. I need to be closer to my daughter so so now I'm back in Southern California. I'm close to my daughters. Um, I get a phone call from Jim Norman, who was the, the one deputy I had previously mentioned where I, w- I was on that call with him in, in Randy. Uh, Jim called me and he told me that uh, Larry Estes has been, had been shot and killed uh, in the line of duty the night before. And I was like, What? you know, this can't be happening again. Um, You know, it drummed up all those old emotions again. I really did my best. You know, I had a change of scenery. I had a new job, new responsibilities. um, And, you know, that really took my mind off of what had, uh, you know, Randy's death. Um, So what I learned later on is I really didn't effectively deal with um, that whole shooting and, and Randy's death, I just, you know, substituted it with you know a new job, new responsibilities and a change of scenery. So, so 2001, uh, Jim calls me, Hey, Larry's been shot and killed. And, uh, I was getting ready to go on vacation. Um, uh, I was going to be gone on a long road trip vacation. So I had canceled my vacation plans and I went up to the memorial service um in in butte county in chico california and um larry and another uh a young deputy who i did not know he started with butte county after i left the the agency um long story short young deputy hunter uh goes on a burglary uh report call um where um a suspect had been identified as an individual who stole multiple firearms and some other things. Um, so deputy Hunter wanted to make uh, suspect contact and wanted a backup unit to go to the residence with him. Now it's in a mountainous area of Butte County. Larry Estes lived in the town of paradise, which as you know, recently burned down to the ground like two years ago in that, that big fire. But Larry lived in paradise uh, not too far from where this call was. So Larry's in his unmarked car. He, sa- he says, hey, I'll I'll back him up. Larry's in plain clothes and go. they go to the residence. Um, and a lot of it is based on the forensic um, evidence that was left at the scene because there were no survivors, no survivors whatsoever. Somehow they end up making entry into the, the front room at this residence, this suspect residence, um, where they're met by gunfire. There's a shootout. Deputy Hunter is hit immediately. He he's, he's, doesn't even have a chance to return fire. Um, the suspect engaged Larry. Larry returned fire, um, killed the suspect, but Larry was hit as well, and and everybody died at that scene. Dispatch couldn't raise anybody on the radio. Long story short, the SWAT team is deployed. Everybody's figuring the worst had happened, and they were correct in their assumption. Um, they uh, make tactical entry and they find everybody deceased. So I, I went up for the funeral, and uh, I was—I became a blubbering basket case again after that. It it drummed up all of those uh, emotions again, even though I wasn't there, I had already left the the department, but Larry was a coworker. Larry was my boss. You know, he was someone I had contact with on a regular basis. And what I'm told is that he would have retired that year, but he bought a brand new dually pickup truck to tow his fifth wheel trailer. So he decided to stay on an extra year uh, before retiring so that he could pay off his new truck.
0: See, that's such a heartbreaking story. And again, these are the sacrifices that our men and women, you know, make, and also their families make. While we're out there in uniform, they're left unprotected, you know, by their responder. But um, with the Paradise, I've actually got one of the dispatchers from that fire coming on because I can't imagine, you know, sadly, dispatchers the kind of unsung hero, but most of the responders couldn't even get up there. So the dispatchers were the ones taking the calls as people were literally about to burn to death in their own homes. So, you know, the, the the weight of that is, you know, immense, but I mean, to, to, to not even be on duty and come up and again, a single cop on their own, you know, I mean, I just think it's Mm -hmm. insanity, but, and then, you know, backed up by him and they all die. I mean, just awful, but it's important that we hear these stories because again, the narrative at the moment is so, so polarized and, you know, these are the men and women I know because I served alongside you guys, you know, in the fire medic capacity. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, now you have just to kind of recap, you have the you know the organizational stress of all the different departments and some of the kind of betrayal. Um you have the relationship issues with the divorce and the child support and you know the you know the being back around your daughters. You have these co-workers that you lost, obviously untold traumatic calls that you responded to, domestic abuses and all these things. Uh you, you speak of a horrific one with the man shot his uh, housekeeper in the book. Um when did you find yourself deep, deep, deep down, where, where was like the, the darkest place that you got to before, you know, you, you, thank goodness had, had that kind of epiphany that turned your life around.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I had multiple, multiple, uh, critical incidents throughout my career, um, had seen a lot of death, been to a lot of homicide scenes. Um, you know, the, the, the dead kids, those are really what, you know, what, what stuck with me, what got, got to me um you know and and i might also add that um uh you know you hear uh, i believe his name's brendan mcdowell mcdonough Surviv- mcdonough mcdonough, McDonough. yeah and he talks about survivor's guilt well survivor's guilt is a real thing because when when randy was killed and the suspect was killed you know we were there alone in that dark field i was the only one who walked away and um, survivor's guilt is a real thing too. So I had survivor's guilt, seen a lot of horrible things. And I learned later on about transferences uh, when you're an empathetic person, like basically when you, you actually have a heart and you can place yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, some Some of us have a tendency to take on that grief, you know? and i I remember all of the grieving people that I encountered, you know, when I'd have to tell them, "Hey, um you know, your family member's deceased. they were murdered or or whatever. So um, there was one particular incident in in two thousand and nine May of, I'm sorry, uh February, February of uh, two thousand and nine. It happened to be President's Day. So it is a holiday. And I'm getting paid double time to be at work, which was kind of nice. And uh, I was a sergeant with um, uh, Riverside County Sheriff's Department at this time. And I was assigned to our Southwest Station, um, to our contract city of Temecula. That was a contract city for us where we provided law enforcement service uh, to the community. Um, We were Actually, that my previous agency, we were taken over by the sheriff's department. The city decided that it was more cost effective to contract with the sheriff for police services um, than it was to maintain their own PD. So in 2004, we got taken over. I was hired during the transition and, um, and transferred from the San Jacinto station. Now I'm working in Temecula. So President's Day, two thousand nine, I'm. It was a slow day, and 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 once again, I'm thinking about lunch. I'm like, where am I going to eat? I think I'll meet up with one of my guys or gals, and you know, try to grab something at Chick Fil A or whatever. And um, but I, you know, there we have. There was a large mall in Temecula, the Promenade Mall, and they had just done a complete remodel on it. They expanded it and added these two huge parking structures. So. Um, I decided, oh, I'm going to take a cruise through one of the parking structures and see what's going on. Because, you know, sometimes we would get reports of um, juvenile activity or, um, you know, people having sex in vehicles in the parking structure or smoking weed, drinking beer, you know, things they're not supposed to be doing in public. So. Um, I got up to the third level of the parking structure and there was a little minivan parked there all by itself. And I was just gonna drive by it, but then I thought I saw movement out of the corner of my eye. So I backed up and positioned my vehicle tactically. And um, as I'm walking up to the uh side of this van, um, to the, the sliding door of this minivan, um, all of a sudden a crazy guy appears in the window, uh, really close to the glass. And he, and he starts waving a big knife around at me and he's like mouthing something to me, but I can't, I don't even know if he's audibly saying anything or or what, but he just looked crazy. So, uh I drew my pistol and pointed it at him, got my front side on him, started backing away because, um, there's, there's this old training film called uh, Surviving Edged Weapons. It's, it was put out in the early 80s, I believe. And a lot of us had had seen this video where um, they say that uh, someone, even if they're 40 feet away from you um, with a knife, they can still bum rush you and and stab you before you're even unholstered. So I wanted to put distance between me and this crazy guy. So I call for backup and back away, um, start yelling commands at him to drop the knife, drop the knife. In my mind, you know, um, we, we fall back on our training and experience. So my training and experience tells me the next thing he's going to do is I'm going to see this sliding door come open. He's going to bum rush me with, with a knife in an overhand position, and I'm going to have to use lethal force on him and shoot him. Well, that's not what happens. Um, I see him turn to the side through the window. It's more of a silhouette now from where I'm standing, and he starts making these over-exaggerated downward stabbing motions. Uh, Long story short, more people get there. The van is locked. We smash a window out and then reach inside and hit the unlock button, and we open up the van, pop the back hatch open now, Um, there's another Sergeant there on scene with me. We're standing at the back, get the hatch open. And now here's crazy guy in the back of the van on the floorboard with his knees, straddling the body of a female. Um, he raises up, puts the knife in the overhand position and he has that crazy thousand yard stare. We yell at him to drop the knife. I'm thinking, here we go again. We're going to have to shoot this guy because we got to get this girl out of here. Um, She's covered in blood. Um, He gets tased by uh, another deputy. um, Slumps over on his side, still has the knife in his hand. He's yanked out and dropped onto the pavement and, and, you know, um, the knife is removed and he's handcuffed. Um, We, uh, the other sergeant and I pulled the girl out, and there's no pulse. He he stabbed her to death multiple times and slit her throat. She was bound and gagged in the back of the van. So in the course of the investigation, what we find out afterwards is this girl who's in her 20s is uh, his estranged fiance. They're ha- They're having issues. He apparently kidnaps her. Bounds and gags her, drives her out to the desert somewhere around Palm Springs. um, And he's driving around with her a couple of days. Somehow they end up in this parking structure at the Promenade Mall where I encounter him. And he tells the investigators that he sees me walking up on the van and he freaks out and he knew he was in trouble because he kidnapped her. She's on the floor, bound and gagged. So um, that one, that one really affected me. Um, it's like, I know you can't save everybody, but if, if only, if only I had known she was down there, I mean, I can't shoot the guy if he's, you know, stabbing a dog in the back or he's stabbing a pillow or, or whatever, but I can't go up to the window, um, which is tinted and press my face up to the glass to see what he's doing either. Exactly. I had to wait for a backup unit. That's, you know, what my training and experience tells me to. So uh, once again, I'm pissed. He killed a girl and I'm, I'm pissed. I didn't get to take him out, you know, cause that's what we do. We try to save the innocent, you know, and um, I wasn't able to do that in this case. So after this incident, I'm home, and it th- that particular incident in 2009 seemed to bring all of the horrific things I was involved in. It seemed to bring it up to the surface, and that's where the past came colliding with the present. Um, again, I wasn't sleeping, so I started drinking wine before I went to bed, um, and it worked for a while until it didn't. Um, then I had to switch to the the hard booze because the wine stopped working and um, that's how i would uh, go to sleep every night um and then there came a point you know about a year and a half before retirement where i realized hey i don't want to be some drunk retired cop sitting around the house you know (laughs) drinking all day i need to i need to stop so you know i would i would manage to get long periods of sobriety and not drink um and then you know something would happen that would trigger me, and then I'd I'd go to the old you know the old standby, go to the store and buy a bottle.
0: So you found yourself in a DUI. So you know with, within the book you talk about you know some of the DUIs that you you ran on. You know so that's the irony I think in the first responder profession is, you know the the addiction element is plaguing our profession, and as if anyone who's listened to the story up to this point. There's so many layers, you know, of com- compounding trauma. But if any of us, anyone who actually drinks is honest with themselves, they you know at any one time, they if they got pulled over, they'd at least blow over the limit, if not, you know, be, yes. be way past that. So there's an sure. irony and there's a shame about that as well. You know, like yes, I'm enforcing absolutely. the very laws that I'm actually doing myself on my days off. Absolutely. So, so talk to me about that and then you know the the, the spiritual um enlightening that you had after that
1: sure so um you know to me uh alcohol was it was an affliction i i wanted to stop but i didn't know how um nobody had um uh told me how you know how to how to stop how to abstain i knew about alcoholics anonymous but i was so you know uh unteachable back in my earlier days i used to When I was a young policeman, I I remember driving through an industrial complex uh, and I'd see people because in the 80s, you know, smoking was a real thing. A lot of people smoked in the 80s. So I drive through this complex and there'd be people in the parking lot smoking and drinking coffee. Well, as it turns out, it's it's an AA meeting. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, it must suck to be those people. You know, I'm so glad that I'm, you know, so morally superior to everybody else. And I don't have the problem that they do. You know, they're weak. You know, they have to go to these meetings for their problem. Well, here, you know, I find myself decades later in the same, same position. So, um, yeah. I uh for me it took a a crash where I was arrested for DUI um and uh sent two people to the hospital sadly you know it took it took me um hurting somebody else you know um it, it got to that point it got so bad I was a tough nut to crack but that was that was the beginning of of healing for me um, for me personally so um, I I prayed. I mean, when I, you know, the first day I got locked up, I I was on the knees, on my knees in the cell praying to God like, you know, please heal the people uh and 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 please, you know, help me. I don't know what to ask for, just help me. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live like this. You know, I have a wife, I have children, I have friends. They're going to be uh ash- ashamed and disappointed. So, um I asked for help and ultimately, uh, I, I, just surrendered, you know, I, 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 had to learn to stop being the boss, uh, you know, cause, um, you know, speaking of myself in the third person, you know, uh, Keith had to run the show, you know, Keith was the type A personality. So, you know, I had to make everything happen. I, you know, I was a micromanager, you know, I had to tell people what to do. I had to run my life, you know, the best way I knew how I had to be the pillar of strength and not show weakness, you know, what I thought was weakness, but it's like, no, you know what? We're all human. We're not robots nobody's perfect i'm not perfect by by any means so i i surrendered i surrendered to you know the the god of my youth and and i learned to to pray every day to to tap into my spiritual connection with god i started doing you know morning meditations and and readings of of various types um You know, I I had to get sober. So for me, I had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to get a sponsor and, uh, you know, work the steps, work the 12 steps. And, um, you know, because they say that sobriety is truly based on your spiritual connection. Without that, you know, the quality of that spiritual connection, you can't stay sober. So I try to work on those things daily. It's not just something that you know you can do for a while and say, "Okay, I'm good and then forget about it." You know, it's a, for me, it's a daily reprieve from alcohol. Now, I no longer have cravings or anything like that. I don't have the need to uh, self-medicate on anything. You know, I sleep great these days. You know, life is good now. I feel blessed, uh, and I have a lot of peace in my life now. Um, I've learned to become more self-aware. Um, and, um, you know, for example, my, my wife would be able to tell when I was going to have a PTSD moment, uh, before I'd even realize it, she'd be like, oh, you're distant, you're distant, you're, you're here physically, but you're not, you're not all here, you know, mentally. And she'd see it coming on before I, before I could. So self-awareness is one of the keys too. I mean, I focus on my mental health, my physical health by, you know, going to the gym, trying to eat right. Um, I've eliminated toxic relationships from my life. Um, and honestly, you know, uh, I, I used to put a lot of weight into what people thought about me and what they said about me. And now I could really give a crap, um, you know, as long as uh, I'm doing the right things for the right reasons, the only one I need to please is God and myself and to try to be a good husband, father and, uh, and friend. I mean, my daughters are adults now. They're out of the house, but, you know, they're a, a huge part of my life. So there, there was just a, a major transformation over the, the past few years in, in my life for the for the better.
0: Beautiful. Well we we talked about the toxic relationships. There's a guy, Wayne Dyer. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but no. he, he one of his quotes was what people think of me is none of my business. I exactly. love that You know, yeah. because it's irrelevant. If you if you're if you know in your heart of hearts that you're doing what you consider the right thing, then you know, you're either gonna t- attract or deflect and both is great.
1: That's right. So, yeah. So I have a lot of inner peace because of that. I don't care what people think, you know. I'm not bulletproof, but, you know, words, words bounce off of me now, you know.
0: Now you had a, you know, a moment with God that I think was very important to pull back in, you know, you pull your faith back into it again. So tell me about that.
1: So uh, it's, it's, I didn't write about it in the book at the time. Um, You know, I, I put this book together um, amazingly quickly because I, I wanted to get it out. Um, I thought it would help people. I mean, um, I felt led by the Holy Spirit to, to, to get the word out. And I thought, you know, if this book helps just one person, it'll all be worth it. But um, after I got home, after getting locked up, uh, you know, my wife was obviously not uh, too pleased with me. Uh, so I was sleeping in uh, the guest room. Um, at our house. And um, man, it was the middle of the night, you know, two or three in the morning. And I was awakened um, in the guest room. And I I looked to my right. And, uh, you know, some people may think this sounds crazy, but uh, I've never had anything like this happen to me. I I, I saw a being uh, standing next to my bed. Um, I can't really describe it to you. It was just um, there was a a presence um, and I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid. And it didn't verbally communicate with me, but it like conveyed peace to me. And it was like, uh, take my hand, walk with me and everything's going to be okay. I mean, I was pretty beaten up and broken, you know, after the car crash, you know, physically and mentally and you know, I'm still grieving for the people that I, that I hit. And um, so I'm feeling pretty low. And then i you know, I have this, I guess, apparition, if you will. Um, and uh, like I said, I wasn't afraid. I felt inner peace. I rolled over. I went back to sleep. I had the best sleep I had in, in a long, long time. And then I woke up. I woke up and my mind just became a buzz with, uh, oh, well, I was acutely aware of the presence of the Holy spirit. It was like this smil- still small voice was telling me, these are all the things that you need to fix with you. You know, you're selfish, you're prideful, you're narcissistic. Um, you know, you, uh, care more about, uh, your own welfare than the welfare of others. Um, you know, um, you pay too much attention to what other people think about you. There's all, all of these things. I mean, my mind was just a cornucopia of jumbled thoughts. So I got on the computer and I started just typing out all of my character flaws and I got like four and a half pages worth of stuff. And then, uh, my, I told my wife about it. I was like amazed because nothing like that had ever happened to me in my life. And like I said, I, be, I believe I was consciously awake for that, you know, what appeared in in the room, um, and, unless it was like a dream. And if it was a dream, it sure seemed real, like I was consciously awake and aware. So my wife, uh, you know, being the uh, wonderful person that she is, she said, hey, why don't you start journaling? Why don't you, you know, go back, you know, before all this stuff started. And I'm like, yeah, you know, how did I, I, I'm a, I am was, you know, a relatively normal kid from a normal, loving Christian family. How did I get, you know, from that to where I was at that point in my life? So I went back chronologically and just started typing. And then, um, I felt like the Holy spirit convicted me to, to turn this thing into a book. So my journaling ultimately, um, led to me writing From Sorrow to Amazing Grace.
0: Beautiful. Now, was there an element of catharsis when you wrote as well?
1: I'm sorry, an element of? Of, of catharsis. Did you find it healing actually? Oh, abso- absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It was therapeutic. It was really therapeutic um, being transparent and open. And I thought, you know what? Um, I used to care what people thought about me. You know, I didn't want to do anything to offend anybody. Uh, you know, um, I don't want anyone to know my struggles. I certainly don't want to air my struggles in public. But that all went, went out the window when I wrote this thing. You know, uh, before I sat down and typed, um, I prayed. I'm like, Lord, give me, give me the words. I'll You be the author and I'll be the scribe, basically. Give me the right words. And, and that's essentially how it all came together. And yes, it was very healing. It truly was. It was It was therapeutic writing this thing.
0: See, and what's interesting to me is there's so many different stories I've had on here. The one common denominator is people have the courage to tell their story, their real story, you know, not the kind of Instagram highlight version of their story. Um, but, you know, the, what worked is an absolute spectrum from psychedelics and ibogaine through to, you know, finding religion. I had a, a firefighter, Jason Sortel, who wrote a book called The Rescuer, and that was, right. that was his thing. That's what, that's right. what I worked for him. So with you growing up in, in, you know, the church in that sense, where, where did you go with this new sound, newfound kind of sense of, of God again, as far as, you know, the choosing the church that nurtured your new perspective? <clears throat>
1: well, I, you know, I grew up in the church. I've, pretty much always been attending church at one point or another. I mean, there was a period of time when I stopped going in my adult life. You know, I got too busy, you know, running my own show, <laughs> running my own program. Um, and then when I decided to, you know, kind of let God run the show, um, you know, that all changed. Uh, you know, I go, I attend church regularly. Um, I try to be of, of service to others. Um, uh, we have a fairly new pastor. Uh, he's an associate pastor at at the church I go to, and he's a an army uh, uh, retiree. He retired as a major, but he was an army chaplain, and um, he was uh, deployed on you know during the original invasion of um, Iraq and and all of that. Um, he spent time in Afghanistan. Um, he has a real heart for, uh, veterans, first responders, and people who suffer from post-traumatic stress. So, um, I call him Chappie, you know, he's a retired chaplain. So Chappie and I decided to form a, uh, first responder and veterans fellowship at the church. Um, and it's called sheepdog fellowship, you know, uh, Dave Grossman, he's the one that coined sheepdog fellowship. Now everybody uses it, but, um, you know, it's part of the part of our mission is healing, uh, obviously, fellowship and spiritual growth. Um, so we get together twice a month um, and there's, you know, probably anywhere from 12 to 18 guys that show up on a regular basis. And it's just been wonderful, you know, being of service uh, to others. Um, you know, in, in my life, for me personally, I, I heard a statement and um, and it's so true for for the christian believer god is either everything or he's nothing at all you know um and in my life my my what i call my previous life before the transformation i was that lukewarm guy it's like oh yeah i'm a believer but that's as far as it went yeah i believe in god sure i believe in jesus yeah um, yeah, he died on a cross and, you know, that's great. I'm a believer. So I got my ticket punched. Uh, you know, I get to go to heaven, but when I die, um, but there's a lot more to it. The Christian life isn't just about believing, you know, you have to live it. Um, and I was that lukewarm guy. I had one foot in the world and well, actually both feet in the world where, um, my life did not reflect that of uh, a supposed Christian, you know, I was out there telling dirty jokes and, you know, dropping F-bombs everywhere I went, you know, at work. Um, of course, my image was softened up at, at home, but, you know, I was just, I was a different guy at work, um, a hard charger and, um, you know, it's kind of embarrassing now, but, you know, it is what it is. I'm, I'm not that guy anymore that I used to be, you know.
0: Beautiful. Well, the book is uh, From Sorrow to Amazing Grace. So let's start with that. Where can people find the book?
1: Oh, it's available really anywhere. Books are sold uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, I believe last I heard that uh, Walmart and Target online are carrying it. Um, and then there's even some brick and mortar uh, bookshops that actually physically carry it in stock. Um, but if you Google the, the title, Uh, or my name it'll it'll pop up with you know probably a couple dozen different options to you know locate the book
0: beautiful well the first of the closing questions i love to ask is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated
1: there there actually is a, a book of course i you know i love the dave grossman books um you know from a um healing standpoint And learning about the the dynamics, uh, the inner dynamics of the human psyche and uh, dealing with combat and death and all of that, Um, you know, on combat, on killing, those are two excellent books. Um, Obviously, the Bible is important to me. Um, And there is a book called The Gift of Brokenness. And... The the name of the author escapes me at the moment, but he is a very popular uh, author and pastor. And for some reason, I cannot recall his name.
0: No problem. I'm sure people can Google it. I'll, I'll look it up. I'll put it on the yeah, website when anyway. I was, so.
1: When I was going through my spiritual journey, I read that book early on. And essentially what that says is that, uh, you know, sure, God can use God can use anybody really, Um Uh, according to his purpose, but, um, you know, our brokenness, um, once we reach that point of desperation, it's our brokenness oftentimes that, that leads us to Christ. And, and that's what I got out of it. It's, it's how, you know, when you're so broken, you, you get out of your own head and you learn to become teachable. I wasn't teachable at all. I was a tough nut to crack. I had to become broken um, to become the man that I am today. So that book was a good one.
0: Beautiful. we well, want to ask about movies, but I've, I forgot that there's a potential of your story becoming a film. So where is that at now?
1: Uh, we did our first wave of shooting uh, back in July, uh, mid-July um there's it's going to be filmed in three waves so next month i believe i'm going back to west virginia again for uh the second wave of filming which should be about uh eight or nine days long and then uh at some point after that they're going to film the final scenes out here in arizona uh down around the the phoenix area somewhere um yeah it, the the movie is actually the the title is going to be the the second half of the book one cop's journey and it stars uh dean kane um he's the guy that played uh, superman in the tv series i don't know 15 years ago or 20 years ago and he's he's been in a bunch of different stuff uh and then um a guy named tim ross who's been in quite a few films uh he actually plays Me, he plays my character. And uh uh Catherine Shaw plays the part of my wife Lily. Um we'll see. You know, I hope it's a good quality product when it's when it's done. Um the uh company that's doing it, it's JC Films. They are a faith based uh movie company.
0: Beautiful. Well, same question again as with the book. Are there other films that you love to recommend? Films and or documentaries?
1: Well, I like, um, you know, We Were Soldiers and Young, starring Mel Gibson. That was a powerful, powerful movie. Uh, In fact, one of the uh, characters in that, real-life characters, the individual who played the uh, news correspondent that was deployed with Mel Gibson's character, he just died, I think, two days ago of a heart attack. Um, Yeah, so all of the major real-life people are now gone from, you know, that were represented in that film. Um, I liked uh, Crimson Tide. That was a good one because it's it's a real moral and ethical dilemma, you know, that's brought up in that film. I like the dynamics between Denzel Washington, uh, his character, and Gene Hackman's character it's like okay do we push the button and nuke the world and you know start world war 3 or do we want to wait for additional information to come in do we disobey orders and you know try to get more information so i like the dynamics in that book
0: it's very Are, pertinent uh, right now <laughs> get yeah. more information before you get triggered
1: <laughs> exactly exactly
0: All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world?
1: Actually, um, there's a gentleman. I just did a podcast. It was really neat. We did, we interviewed each other. I had been interviewed by him before, but he is a uh, medically retired police officer from Mesa, Arizona. Um, He was injured on the job and, you know, had to medically retire. Um, you know, he was involved in a shooting and in, in, in some other incidents. Um, his name's Brock Bevel. Have you heard of him?
0: He is coming on. Oh. Actually, no. What am I saying? Hold on. I got, a, I got this too. So, no, Brock Bevel. I was on his. That's Chase the Vase podcast. Chase
1: the Vase. Yeah. Yes, and then sir. I've
0: got another guy whose name's Byron. Um, I'm sorry, I'm totally blanking. He's a police officer who lost a leg being hit on a on a traffic collision like avian you know, helping a traffic collision mm-hmm. and now has returned to work with a prosthetic leg so oh, no another kidding. yeah i got byron branch that's his name so i get those two story. yeah but no brock I, I've, I've been on his podcast so there we go i do know who you're talking yeah.
1: about. he's he's great we interviewed each other it was really neat because i had been interviewed by him once before and i you know we were talking he's become a friend um Uh, truly and uh, said, Hey, what would you think about, uh, you know, instead of people hearing about me again, why don't we just kind of interview each other off the cuff? So that's what we did a couple of weeks ago. It was great. And then um, I had him come up. um, As I mentioned earlier, I teach a class at Northern Arizona university, uh, psychological uh, survival for law enforcement. And I invited Brock uh, to come up as part of my class and he told his story. To the class for a little over an hour and it was just fantastic
0: beautiful i need to get him on as well i mean it's it's funny because when i'm on other people's i always try and you know try and do do the reverse as well because i think it's important you know if someone's invited me onto theirs then you know then there's an equally powerful story not that i have a powerful story but there's a powerful story on the other side of the microphone as well so
1: yeah yeah definitely
0: brilliant all right well then last question before we make sure people know how to reach out to you specifically And what do you do to decompress?
1: You know, I do a lot of different things. Um, You know, as far as physical activity goes, the area I live in is um, chock full of lakes and um, hiking trails and things like that. So um, uh, a few years ago, after I retired, uh, we bought a kayak. So I I go out on, you know, uh, Lynx Lake or uh, Goldwater Lake out here. Um, I like to go fishing. My wife and I like to go hiking. Um, So those are some of the physical activities that I do aside from going to the gym. And then, um, you know, I pray, I pray a lot um, uh, and meditate. And um, I just, I wake up grateful every day, grateful to be alive, grateful that I have a new day. And um, that wasn't me before. I wasn't a grateful kind of guy, you know, I was, you know, you know kind of negative at times and now i just am like so blessed and and i realize it so i thank god for my blessings my families my family um uh, i meditate i read i have some morning readings that i do there's a daily devotional uh that i read and then there's a an alcoholics anonymous reading that i do every morning and some other things so um, that's kind of what I do to decompress. And then my wife and I, we enjoy taking our, our evening walks together.
0: Beautiful. All right. Well, then, as I'm sure you, know, you can imagine, you, your story is going to resonate with a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to either follow you on social media, reach out to you personally. Where are the best places online to do that?
1: Uh, online, I have a Facebook author page, Keith Notek, comma, author so they can uh, link up with me on uh, Facebook. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. They can find me on LinkedIn. I think that's how you and I connected is, is through LinkedIn. originally. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And um, through my publisher, uh, Covenant Books, um, I actually have another book coming out. I don't want to say too much about it. Um, maybe I'll give you a call uh, later on. I'll tell you what that's about. But it's, it's going to be amazing. It's not my story. It's another guy's story. He asked me to write it, and it's, it's powerful. It's, I can't wait until it's done.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to uh, talk offline and, and hear more about that. Thank you. You bet. Well, I just want to say thank you for... Firstly, and I talk about this a lot, for having the courage to tell your story. And I understand as well when you lead someone down their story. You know, it, it's going to stir up emotions. You're talking about, you know, the the brothers that you lost. That's taking you down a, a specific path. But there's so much value because we don't hear the raw stories. We, you know, what for example, let's say a snapshot of your mugshot after your DUI. Drunk, drunk cop hits two. You know, whatever. That doesn't tell you the last you know (laughs) thirty years that we've just discussed. So, right, people need to hear this. People need to see the layers. People need to see that you can be in a dark place and find your way out. Whether it's you know Christianity or equine therapy, whatever it is that Mm -hmm. resonates with you, there are answers for all of us. It's just you know understanding that, as you said, we're not alone. So many people are going through this, and the answers are there. It's just finding the right group of people to lift you back up again.
1: Right, right. And, you know, for me, the spiritual component consists of Christianity because, you know, I was, I was raised, you know, with a Judeo-Christian God. Um, but, you know, in my class that I teach up at the university, you know, I have everything under the sun in the class. I have students who are atheists, and— You know, what I do remind them is we forget about the spiritual component and spirituality doesn't necessarily have to be about religion. It can be, but really it's about finding purpose and direction in your life and, you know, believing in a higher power, something that is greater than yourself, you know? So if, you know, what I tell these kids, you know, getting out in nature, you know, That could be your higher power. You know, you see the beauty of the blue sky, the sun, the power, and, you know, thunder and lightning, uh, lakes, wildlife. You know, if that's your spiritual connection to something greater than yourself, great. If that works for you, but don't forget about the spiritual component. And you just, it works.
0: You just described yeah. my spirituality to a T, you know, I mean, I, I align with all the common, deno- excuse me, the common denominators of all the faiths, mm-hmm. but I see God in nature. I see God in other people, you know, so absolutely.
1: Absolutely. That's how I, you know, I connect with God when I'm out on a kayak in the middle of a lake, you know, and I'm looking at the the ducks on the water and the blue sky and the pine trees around the lake. I hear the rustling of the wind through the trees you know to me that's like you know i don't want to say god speaking but that's how i connect with god it just it 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 brings awareness um to that spiritual component
0: absolutely well keith as i said before thank you so much for coming on today it's been a great oh, conversation oh my pleasure
1: thank you james thank you so much